Every once in a while, somebody will mention that they have a program, a television, a family event on VHS tape. And they will say, you know, it's a shame. I don't think I even have the VCR to play that. I mean, who has a VCR anymore? And I say, hi, I'm Zach. Have we ever met? Oh, I've got one. I've got one hooked up to our TV in our family room all the time. And I've still got all sorts of VHS tapes. And you know what's funny is I remember, I remember back to when VHS was not the only game in town. See, there was a war going on between Sony and JVC, two high-tech, cutting-edge Japanese companies about who would rule the home theater world. In Sony's corner, they had something called Betamax. Does anyone remember? Does anyone have any Betamax at home? I don't even have any Betamax. You do? God bless you, Aaron. Okay, well, we got, the, we got the Betamax at mom's house, but I'm sure many of you have a big box full of VHS tapes. But at first, they were neck and neck, right? I even remember going to the video store in Center Avenue in Bay City, and there was all this VHS, and then there was one sad little rack that said Betamax. And I always wondered, what went wrong with Betamax? It was a better picture. It was a more convenient size. It was absolutely superior in every way. But here's the problem. Sony said, we've got such a better product, and we want to make as much money as we can, so we are going to hang on tight to this technology. You want Betamax? You've got to come through us. So, Columbia Pictures, you want your show on Betamax? You've got to come through us. We'll hook you up. No one else gets their grubby fingers on Betamax. Whereas, JVC said, why don't we do this? We'll flood the market. Anybody, you want to use VHS? No problem. We'll sign off on it. Here you go, here you go. Here we're like Oprah with these things. Everybody gets VHS. And that worked because everybody took these VHS and they were just everywhere. And they thought, well, if there's more of them, it makes more sense to buy a player for that. And that's kind of a, a bit of a metaphor of what we see going on in the early church. The sharing is what made this upstart always looking like it was about to fall over like a newborn horse trying to stand for the first time, church flourish and grow and begin to literally take over the Roman world just as Jesus instructed them to and promised that it would. We see that because they were so open in their sharing, sharing with one another, sharing the good news with the world, that there was no stopping. And at the same time, like Betamax, they had the superior product. Their, their gospel, their good news was so much better than the quote-unquote good news of any of the Roman religions, the mystery cults, the Greek gods. None of it could hold a candle to what was offered by the gospel. So here we are still in Acts chapter 4, and a lot of people will blow right through this whole chapter, like boom, boom, boom. I think that's a mistake. There's a lot going on here. We've been in it for like a month now. And, and let me just get you up to speed if you haven't been with us. What happened was Peter and John, two of the apostles, after Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension, after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, they were on their way into the temple to worship, and they walked past a man begging by the temple gate called Beautiful. And he was there collecting gold and silver and things that he needed for his livelihood. And Peter looked him right in the eye and said, Look at me. 
Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand and walk. The man stood up and began to walk. Everyone was amazed. Peter said, hey, you're all gathered around. Let me tell you about Jesus. Preached the gospel, and people started coming to Christ, coming to faith in droves. And of course, they were right there at the temple. And so the temple leaders... Those same men who had put Jesus to death, they said, we can't let this stand. We can't let this happen. Had them arrested by the captain of the temple guard, just like they had with Jesus. Threw them in a cell overnight to think about what might be coming their way, just like they did with Jesus. In the morning, pulled them out to interrogate them like they had with Christ. And they said, by whose name and by what authority and power do you do this? And they said, the only name under heaven by which we could be saved, and that is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They conferred together, the leaders. We can't have this. What are we going to do? We can't put them to death because the crowd is on their side and we're all politic and wise about this. So they came back and said, all right, this is what we're going to let you off the one-time warning. We're going to let you off the hook this one time, but see that you do not preach or teach at all in this name of Jesus ever again. To which Peter said, you be the judge of whether we should obey God or man. And then they left. And that about brings us up to where we are here, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They went back to their, their friends, or literally to their own. They went back to those of whom they were a part, the church, their own people. And, and, you know, this is key. Don't miss that this is very important, that when you are in a position where your faith has been threatened and you feel almost like it's been violated and, and, you're, and you're a little cagey and you're a little worried, the, the enemy is going to want to isolate you. So you're all on your own and you're scared and you're worried and you're, and you're double thinking and second guessing everything you thought you knew and believed. Don't let yourself be isolated. So many so many stories of people falling away from the faith begin with them just sort of pulling away from the church. Eh, maybe that's not so important. Maybe gathering with our own. Maybe meeting together with people of like precious faith to, to worship and build one another up and encourage each other and inspire each other to works of love and mercy. Man, it's not that important. Maybe the Lord's table, the bread, and the cup aren't that important. Maybe the opening the word. I mean, that guy up there, he says the same thing all the time. Maybe gathering together with the men's prayer or the women's prayer group or coming together for midweek prayer. So, you know, maybe what's really important is that I just have it in here. And that often is the first step towards someone falling away from the faith. And we have here a beautiful snapshot as they do return to their own of what the church life was like. We already had one back in chapter 2, and I told you it was the first of a few. In, in chapter 2, verses 42 uh, through the end of the chapter, 47, I, I recommend you go back and read that later on and compare the two. We won't do that now. But this is another one of these snapshots, and these are useful as we ask ourselves, do we as the church today share the same passion? Do we share the same holiness, the same love, the same sort of communal life, the same values as the church did in those first days after the Lord Jesus' ascension. In verse 24, when the people had heard it, 
they lifted their voices together to God and began to pray. That was just their instinct. Oh, that's what happened? That sounds serious. Let's immediately pray. That was their go-to move. The apostles said, we need to go back and tell the brothers. The brothers and sisters said, oh, wow, let's pray. No one had to take a vote. No one, no one said, let's discuss this first. Hold on, let's, let's make a pros and cons list. No, they said, we need to go to the Lord in prayer. Is that our go-to move? Like it was with the apostles? I don't know. I don't know if it is. This week, we had, we're, we're getting the roof redone, and there was a bit of a major hiccup with some stuff. And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, what's smartest? Ah, what should we do? And we all discussed it over email on the church board, and we talked to some people not on the board. And we, I, don't, I don't think I put much time into prayer. And that's to my shame. And I don't think the elders in our emails, anybody said, hold on, let's take, you know, we didn't have much time, but let's take even half an hour for us all to pray and then come together. We need to get back to that being the muscle memory. The, the reflex to go to God in prayer. John Stott writes about this passage. We've seen the apostles in the council. Now we see them in the church. Having been bold in witness, they were equally bold in prayer. So they all pray together. And we have, the, this is the lengthiest prayer in the book of Acts, by the way. We have the entire text of it. And, and one might ask the question, how did they all pray the same thing? Right? Like in a musical, when all of a sudden everyone knows the same song and dance routine, that's a little bit difficult for me to suspend disbelief sometimes. I, they would have had to work on that for weeks. How'd they know they would need that song? Well, some have suggested that maybe there was the Holy Spirit's divine inspiration. They were filled with the words to say. It seems to me more likely this was the way we pray today. This is what the word amen is for. It's, it comes from the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. It means truly or so be it, perhaps. And one person would pray, and everyone would utter their amens. Amen, amen. Or I've prayed with people where they, you know, I'm, I'm praying, and we're in a group, and people say, like, yes, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Man, I love that. They're affirming that prayer, all praying together. I suggest that's probably what was going on here. And, you know, this, this prayer, it contains extensive quotations from Scripture. So everyone was already on the same page when it came to its content. I've often heard, you know, this person, that guy can really pray. Let's have him pray. Or that lady, she, she, she knows how to pray. Give her the invocation to do at different churches that I've been at over the years. And, and uh, oftentimes, that means that person is just very eloquent and flowery. Sometimes it means they know all the right buzzwords that we've introduced to prayer in the American Evangelical Church. What it ought to mean if someone knows how to pray is that they really know the Scriptures well. That they open their mouth, and out of the overflow of their heart comes the Scriptures. Because they have stuffed their heart full of the Scriptures. Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Storing up God's word in our heart keeps us in holiness and helps us in prayer. In fact, we might say prayer and meditating on Scripture are two sides of the same conversation. When I pray, I speak to God. When I read Scripture, He speaks to me. The Holy Spirit is involved in both of them. So as I read God's Word as a believer, the Holy Spirit illumines the meaning to me if I'm in the Spirit. And, and as I pray, the Holy Spirit, we see in the book of Revelation, bringing our, our prayers into God's presence as sweet incense. And even when we don't know what to pray, 
The Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf, St. Paul tells us. And both sides of this conversation bleed into each other. So that when the apostles are studying the, the teaching, and, and when the people are, are devoting themselves to learning, they're doing it prayerfully. And that when the people are praying, they're doing it scripturally. So the two sides of the conversation kind of blend into one another, making it all the more powerful. Remember how they chose Matthias earlier in the book of Acts. There was, it was all based on something from Psalms. It was all based and rooted in the Scriptures. And they are now in a better position to understand God's Word than anyone had ever been before. Because we, we read in, in Luke 24. Luke, of course, is the prequel to this book, also written by the same guy. Uh, that after Jesus had appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said to each other, Did our hearts not burn in our chests while he opened to us the Scriptures? Jesus had opened the Scriptures up to them. They had been closed. The seals had been sealed. But the, the, the Lamb has come and opened those seals. And then just a dozen verses later, Jesus comes and appears to the disciples, and we read, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you've put your faith in Jesus and been born again, if you have, if you have been made a new creation and are being made a new creation, that means that, that Jesus is opening the Scriptures to you and opening your minds to the Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit indwelling you is at work so that you can benefit from these things. So as they pray, it is saturated with the Word of God. The prayer begins here in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said, by the Holy Spirit. And then they begin to quote Psalm 2. The first two verses. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. The word anointed there in the Hebrew, it's Mashiach, where we get Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christos, where we get Christ. They see Jesus in these Old Testament Psalms because clearly they are about Jesus. If we go back to the Psalm and continue reading in verse 3, we, we notice something interesting. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a, a psalm that's known as a messianic psalm. It was, it was thought to be about the Messiah from centuries before this. But the part that they actually focus on and quote in their prayer is not about the Messiah, but about the Messiah's enemies. And they identify those enemies of the Messiah as Herod, Pilate, the Sanhedrin, those rulers of the nations who gathered together to plot to put Jesus to death. They see Christ fulfilling these passages, and therefore they see the enemies of Jesus as also being part of that fulfillment. And they, in looking, stare, staring straight into the face of the enemies of God who have been spoken of for centuries and centuries, they find comfort that God is sovereign. In fact, that's how they begin their prayer. It's not with the normal word for Lord, kurios. Rather, it's with a word that, that means a sovereign or a sovereign Lord, despotes. You can hear in that word, the word despot, right? A despot we usually think of as a bad guy. It's somebody who claims for himself absolute authority and power. 
Not someone who shares it with people or with even advisors. A despot has, has absolute authority and power corrupts, therefore absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's generally a good maxim, except here we're dealing with God who is perfectly holy and perfectly just and, yes, perfectly sovereign. We, if we continue to read here from verse 4 in, in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Understand that they didn't have psalm numbers back then, and so the way that you would reference a psalm would be with the first line or a couple of lines. That's what they're doing here. They're referencing the whole psalm. Like when Jesus says, My Lord, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the name of the psalm. You want to read the whole thing. Here, we'd want to look at the whole thing. Yes, God sits in heaven and laughs at the puny attempts of his enemies to throw off his bonds and burst the cords from around them. He has set his king on Zion, on the holy hill. And Jesus, that very king, has died there. And now he has risen again. And we see that He is unstoppable because He is sovereign. And there's much in this passage, Acts 4, about predestination. God's sovereign acts of in advance, setting out things that will be. Even, even the decisions of Pilate and Herod are attributed to God. Although it's also attributed to them. They will be held accountable but God is sovereign. Those two things are not incompatible. And in verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place, whatever God is going to cause to take place, they want to be part of God being glorified in its midst. They want to be strong enough as this persecution is beginning that they will not turn away from their Savior. Notice that they don't then take the time to pray against their enemies like David sometimes did. They did not pray that, that God would be understanding if they had to bend His rules. I hear a lot of that lately. You know, God's gracious. He's understanding. He knows the world's changing. He knows our values are changing. That people are, they do things differently than they used to do. And a lot of what the church insists on sounds so old-fashioned to the world. God understands. That reminds me of Naaman. When he'd been healed, healed of leprosy, a picture for us of, of being saved from our sin. And he says to Elijah, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon, which is a pagan god, to worship there, leaning on my arm, and, and I bow myself down in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter? How often do we when we pray, when things are, are pushing against us, say, Lord, give me a little leeway here. That's not what they prayed. They prayed for boldness to defy the world's standards, to defy the demands of the powerful on them, to defy the values of Rome. That said, no, no, you must bow to our gods and you must offer sacrifice to our gods. When we face crisis, obedience ought to be our primary concern. And if you look at the next verse, verse 29, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their, their threats and grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then they pray for something else in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, 
Jesus. So they're praying for boldness to continue to preach, and they're praying for power in their preaching, and they're praying for miracles. It was a miracle that got them into this mess to begin with. And yet they're doubling down on it. Lord, we want to keep on preaching. We see people coming to faith. We know that we're going to be up against all the might of the Sanhedrin and Israel, all the might of Rome, but we pray that you will keep on bringing signs and wonders. Keep on giving us the desire and the intensity to preach without compromise. They asked for boldness and power as they defied worldly rulers. This is indeed the church at worship in their dark hour. And then in verse 31, we see that they get confirmation that God has heard their prayers. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered. Shaking of a place is often indicative of a theophany, God's appearance, manifestation in the Scriptures. Mount Sinai shakes when God is there. In Isaiah 6, the temple shakes, and there's no doubt that God is present in a powerful way. But let me ask you this. What about when God doesn't answer your prayers by shaking the room? I mean, I know that usually He does, but what about when He doesn't? It can be difficult when we are meeting this kind of resistance, when we have become discouraged, when we say, God, we're doing what you asked us to do and everything's not going how we expected, to say maybe he doesn't hear our prayers. When God doesn't answer by shaking the room, or like he did on the day of Pentecost, does not answer by the sound of rushing wind and visible fire above the heads of his servants, pray deeply that God will show you himself anyway, if not through the sound of wind and the sight of fire, through the, the absolute undeniable feeling in your soul of the wind of the Spirit burning that fire into fresh fire, feeding it with the Holy Spirit and giving you more and more and more desire to continue to do what He has called you to do. And He doesn't answer by these things like wind and fire and shaking and trembling. Remember the story of Elijah when he was on the mountain of the Lord. He said, I want to see you. I've got to talk to you, God. And there was a great wind, but the Lord was not in the wind. And there was fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. There was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then God spoke to him through a still, small voice. A whisper to his soul so much better than any of those things that came before it. We, we need to ask our God to speak to our hearts in that still small voice. We see then that not only were they at worship, but as we read the rest of this passage, they were also in service. They were at work. And it begins here in verse 32 with a, a very familiar statement. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. They were, in the King James, of one accord. One heart. I think the NIV says one heart and mind. One heart and soul in the ESV. Both of them are pretty good. They're, they're of one cardia. You can hear that's heart, right? Cardiac. And suke. P-S-Y or U-C-H-E. And you go, oh, yeah, that looks like psyche. That's <laughs> where we get in mind, Right? But it also means self, soul, one very identity 
together. They were unified. They had unity of doctrine, unity of purpose, unity of thinking. And we Baptists, what's a polite way that I can put this? Sometimes tend to overemphasize the value of disagreement, I think. Now, now part of our, our identity as Baptists is that we, we say we can differ on these uh, non-essential points and still gather together to worship, not insist that everyone fall in line and sign on the exact same dotted line. But often that turns into, well, we have to have some matter of dispute. We have to have some kind of, of different. We can't have, we have, can't have total unity. Careful. Jesus prayed for exactly that kind of unity of thinking in John 17, verses 20 to 23, in his high priestly prayer. In fact, that was one of the last things he prayed for, for his church, before going to his death. What we as Baptists at our best have always reacted against is forced uniformity. But unity of mind and of will and of purpose is something we should be seeking and achieving degree by, by degree. And we'll see here effective service, as we saw in, verse, uh, in chapter 2, when the same thing comes up, unity of mind, effective service and work for God comes out of this kind of unity. Paul, to the Ephesians in chapter 4, tells them, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Or as John Wesley, the great Methodist reformer, was describing how the church ought to have unity, he says, their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. What a beautiful picture. The church, their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. And that manifested itself in this early church with them sharing their possessions. They shared all things. As the church grew, so did the number of poor in their midst. Probably the fastest growing demographic there was poor Galileans who were coming into Jerusalem. Which makes sense in that Jesus himself was a poor Galilean. And that meant that there was a problem with need, with want. And so they, they addressed it by sharing their things in common, their possessions. This was also mentioned in that earlier snapshot. Chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. They kept things in common, and both times it comes out of a unity of mind and spirit. Them being in one accord. Their hearts have been changed, and therefore from the, outs the inside out rather comes this desire to share. It's not something that is from the outside compelled upon them. For example, in monastic orders. Granted, you choose to join, but once you've joined, all right, you've relinquished everything, and you don't, get to, you don't get to choose. And that kind of robs the individual believer of the blessing of giving and sharing. No, this is not compelled. This is from the heart. And to address this need, a common fund was established. This is what will become the deacon's fund in a couple chapters once there's deacons. But for now, this is a small enough group that the apostles can actually disperse the funds as they come in, in the way that makes the most sense. But, you know, as someone living in the 21st century, with this new economy and all these things, we might look back at this and say, that's awfully inefficient. People were bringing these things to the feet of the apostles. The apostles then were redistributing to where the need was. Why you got the middleman here? You know, we live in an age of Uber and Airbnb where the, the person providing and the person in need, they just come right together and we cut the middleman out, this big bloated machine. Now, sometimes that's how it, it works best. Sometimes you know of a need 
and you think, I don't need to get all sorts of other things. I can just go and meet that need and be a blessing right now, in this moment. Sometimes that's what we see happening in the Scriptures. But there's a good reason why the church ought to be involved. When we look at the, the diversity of the people in the early church, what would happen if it was the rich helping the poor? There would become a sense of indebtedness. They would gather together and it's how we all know you were about to lose your home and I bailed you out, so why don't you go along with me on this vote? Why don't you... Why don't, it becomes tears of, I'm more important. And there's already a problem in this world of castes and class, as there are today in many parts of the world. And so if the, those who can give come and they surrender any ownership of these things and say it belongs to the church now, and then the church says, well, you are in need and we are going to help, everyone remains on equal footing. Also, they could write it off on their taxes later, so there's that. But this common fund meant that no one was in need. There was no one in need. That goes all the way back, by the way, to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15, there will be no poor among you. This is nothing new. For the Lord will bless you in the land of the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord. So this is this ideal from the Old Testament now finding in a very unexpected way a manifestation in the New Testament world. I think it's important to reinforce that private ownership of homes and things did continue and does continue throughout the New Testament and should continue today. And in Acts 12, we read of the home of this particular woman. We see this happening again and again, that from time to time, as there was need, people who had the ability came and supplied what was needed. And we're going to see very clearly next week that Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't have to give. What that, that field belonged to you, Peter says, and you had no obligation to give it. But because you did, well, we'll get ahead of ourselves if I say much more. Rather, this is a willingness to share and a desire to put the other first. It's stewardship, understanding that we are simply caretakers of the things in our possession. I think the, the best example of this I ever saw was a guy named Ron Yob. He, he was the pastor and planter of a church I was involved in. It was a, in Grand Rapids. Uh, it was a Native American church called, it was an outreach church, a mission church. It was called All Tribes Fellowship. And this guy was an amazing preacher, and he would weave in these Native American like, like legends and things into the sermon, and it was so fascinating. But beyond that, he also was just an amazing man of God, in that everything that was being used for this church, it was his. There wasn't really a budget. You know, the money that came in was going to help other people, and... and he viewed all of the things that he owned in exactly this way. Because at the same time, my, my roommate and I, who was also involved in this church, we had, oh, what's the way to, a really crummy Christian rock band. And uh, even though it was crummy, we were able to use it to bring the gospel to people. We went into prisons. We went to, to rock and roll shows where people did not know that someone was about to preach Jesus to them. All this kind of thing. And, and we often would go to Pastor Ron and say, hey, can we borrow that drum set? Oh, we, can we borrow the, the van? Every time, dozens of times we asked, the answer was the same. As far as I'm concerned, it's Jesus' drum set. That's Jesus' laptop. That's Jesus' guitar stand. Jesus wants you to bring it back, if you can, in good working order, but sure, feel free, because it belongs to Jesus. I'm just the caretaker. 
What an incredible way to show the love of Christ and to show our own humility as followers of Jesus. It's about how we view our wealth, our possessions, our connections even. If you've been coming for the last couple years to a Wednesday night, then the name Andrew Murray means something to you. He's the man who wrote With Christ in the School of Prayer. And he once wrote, uh, uh, actually preached a sermon and then turned it into a discourse that he wrote about salvation, the Holy Spirit, and money. And this is what he wrote. Money is the great symbol of the power of happiness in this world. One of its chief idols drawing men away from God, a never-ceasing temptation to worldliness, to which the Christian is daily exposed. It would not have been a full salvation that did not provide complete deliverance from the power of money. The story of Pentecost assures us that when the Holy Spirit comes in His fullness into the heart, then earthly possessions lose their place in it. The Holy Spirit pushes out the earthly possessions from the throne of the believer's heart. And they try and nudge their way back in, but if we're being sanctified, we push them out again. Because we recognize that what the church is, it's not a country club where people who have a lot and have it all together come together and go like, look at my monocle. Rather, Jesus says it's a hospital. I came for those who are sick, not those who are well. I spend a good deal of time in hospitals. I've spent many, many hours at Sparrow, and at McLaren in the waiting room for the intensive care unit. And I'll tell you what, when you're in that room, it's a whole different set of rules than the rest of life. Pretense and and pride out the window. There's no distinction. You might have the, the CEO of General Motors sitting here next to a guy who works on the line and they are equal because they both love their wives and their wives are in surgery and they don't know if they're going to make it. People are kind. Rudeness is gone. Selfishness is gone. And if we are the church, we recognize we're in the intensive care unit here. And we, we are looking at a world that is dying. In fact, it's dead. And Jesus says, I came to bring life. There's no time for us to say, but this is mine. There's no time for pride. There's no time for rudeness. There's no time for these things. Voltaire, who who was a strident atheist, writing in the Renaissance, he, he said as he looked out at the world around him, the church and those who were religious and then those who were of no religious faith, he said, when it comes down to money, everyone is of the same religion. That's what he saw. We as the church have to be different. That when it comes to money, we recognize what Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You've got God, you've got mammon, which is worldly wealth. One or the other will be your master. You will love one and hate the other, or you will serve this one and despise the other, but you cannot serve them both. A guy that was different was Barnabas. We'll see next week that not everyone had been freed from the grip of mammon in his heart. But we do, we must continually pray that we will not try to serve two masters. And we do have this guy, Barnabas, to inspire us and give us hope that it can be done. This man in in this passage begins a movement. His name was actually Joseph, but he had the nickname Barnabas. Bar, like bar mitzvah, bar is Aramaic for son. Nabas simply means encouragement. The church, the apostles, had nicknamed him son of encouragement because that was his spiritual gift. 
And what this man did, this Levite from Cyprus, was he sold a field that he owned and came and laid the money at the apostles' feet. And people saw that and they said, ooh, that's a good idea. As there are needs, if I have an extra field or a house that I can sell, I can come and meet that need. To me, this recalls Judas. Judas, who bought a field with blood money and died there. Barnabas is like the antithesis of Judas. He sells his field and gives the money to those who are in need. Judas embezzled money because he was only concerned with himself. Barnabas gives money because he is absolutely selfless. Judas was glory-seeking. Barnabas says, I'll be here to support. And that's his role. He's going to be in this book of Acts throughout. And whenever he shows up, he's never the star. He's always the supporting player. He's here to support and encourage. He supports Paul when everyone said, stay away from that guy, he will kill you. He supports John Mark when, when Paul said, ah, let's not bring that guy, he, he let us down before. He said, no, let's give him another chance. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to throw him under the bus. He's there to support and encourage because he understands this isn't about him. It's not about him having the best fields. It's not about him being one of the 12 apostles or even a name that most people in the church could identify exactly what he'd done. But he starts this movement of, of bringing the money from sold fields and homes and putting them at the feet of the apostles. Juan Carlos Ortiz, who was a pastor in Buenos Aires during a time of great revival, wrote about how when they began to preach the message of discipleship in the churches in Buenos Aires. There was a church where many members brought the titles to their homes and their apartments and gave them to the church leadership, saying, this is what God calls us to do. Isn't this what we see in the book of Acts? Take, take my home. And the leaders didn't know what to do with these things. And so they had them in a lockbox, and they prayed about it and prayed about it, and six months later, they gathered the people together. They said that after much prayer, they had decided to return everyone's real estate. They told the people, the Lord showed us that he doesn't want your empty houses. He wants a house with you inside taking care of it. He wants you to keep everything ready for him. He also wants your car, incidentally, with you as the driver. Just remember, though, it all still belongs to him. After that point, according to Ortiz, when there was someone visiting the congregation, a missionary or someone who, who was in need, they didn't say, is anyone willing to house this person? Is anyone willing to put them up? No. They just said, hey, you, you're going to house this person. Why? You've already given your house to God. And the people were thankful that they were able to be used in that way by God. And the people were thankful that God had let them live in his house. We all ought to have that same sense of thankfulness. All that we have is on loan. And you know, in verses 32 through 34... We see kind of a sandwich. We, we see that, that there is, yes, a couple of statements about sharing everything and having everything in common, but in the middle, the meat of this sandwich is sharing the gospel. In verse 33, they're testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with great power. By the way, the answer to the prayer from the previous section. Yes, there's great power, there's great boldness, there are signs and wonders, and they continue to testify to the resurrection of Jesus despite the opposition. And this is the heart of the work. Don't let's get distracted 
and make the things that are supposed to adorn the gospel the main thing. It's easy to do it because the world will look in and say, oh, I can appreciate humanitarian work. I approve. And as soon as we say Jesus Christ crucified, no, 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 go back to the other thing where you're just kind of nice helping people. Not this whole testifying to Jesus and the resurrection. That's why we need to pray for boldness. This is the heart of the work. This is our main task. In Acts chapter 1, this is what Jesus said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You will be my witnesses. It means you'll open your mouth and testify. That's the verbal form of the word witness. Martureo, by the way, where we get our word martyr because of what went down in the subsequent days. But that's what this whole situation was about that they would continue to testify. The rest is an aside. That they would continue to bear witness to what Jesus had done in Jerusalem and in their lives and what He would be doing in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what the church is about and it must be what our church is about as well. And in verse 34, we see the results of their having prayed for boldness and power and God having answered their prayers. We read these words. There was not a needy person among them, for many as there were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was told and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The result being great power and great grace. In verse 33, great power and great grace. This is what we want in our church. This is what we want in Lansing among all the churches. This is what we want to see on a global scale as we go from Lansing to Michigan, the United States, to the ends of the earth. We want to see great boldness, great power, and more and more grace being poured out. And as that happens, people's hearts are changed. There's less and less concern with me and what's mine and my name and my status and more and more concerned with Christ and what's His, including everything I own and His great name and His status as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would, like John the Baptist, say we must decrease and Christ must increase. That we would, in our very lives, in our ministries, in our jobs, in our families, want to see You lifted up and us move to the background. You as the true owner of everything we think we own, even the breath we breathe, that You would be glorified by the way we use these things well, we've been given the time to use them. And Lord, we pray especially that we would use that very breath to testify to the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us and for a world that is lost in sin. How Jesus died and rose again so that there can be new life. So that there can be something more than chasing after a pile of possessions and a, a famous great name and ease 
and worldly satisfaction that, Lord, we can show people that there is true satisfaction. There is salvation. There is forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Amen.